you, Rachel. Um, so about eight months ago, I did a preaching cohort with Leon, with Lily and Megan, and he assigned me a parable. Uh, I wrote a little sermon on it. It was never intended for a broader audience. And then yesterday at 4 p.m., Anna and I are going to Costco. Leon calls me and says, hey, man, I have a I have a 100-plus degree fever, and you're up. I, what am I up for, right? And he's like, you're, you're up to preach, right? And um, I didn't even know I was on the roster. <laughs> um, so if I hope you take that into account when you notice how nervous I am, when you see how, you know, sweaty I become. You, you just, like when you see my face glisten, you're like, he is on fire for the Lord. That's what you can do, right? Um, and then I guess the last quick bit is like Pat was <laughs> Pat was saying to me before the service, like, you know, isn't this better than like, you know, lectures at universities and stuff? Because it's like your family, right? Right? Isn't that so much better? And I was like, oh, I didn't think about it that way because my mom is probably the most critical person about <laughs> my life decisions. But it, it's, his point is really true. I feel nothing but privilege and honor to be able to share this with you today. And I've gotten to know this specific passage. I've read it over many, many times. And I'm in awe every single time I read it. And so please take this with a grain of salt and show me grace. You know, I would love some audience reception. And yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And um, think about this as more of a time when I get to share with you the things that God spoke to me through this passage. And this specific passage, I just want to set a little bit of a context. Jesus and his disciples are going about town to town, and he's in front of this Jewish audience, and he told them about the importance of shrewdness of money and stewardship. Um, it's a parable that he actually told um, the shrewd manager right earlier in the chapter. And then what happened right after he told that is these Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders came up to him and started scoffing at him criticizing him for the ways that he is misleading this crowd, right? And Jesus chastises them, and he actually calls them lovers of money. In response to their accusation, he tells them this parable titled The Rich Man and the Lazarus. Rich Man and Lazarus. So I'm going to read Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Please join me in a word of prayer. 
Father, show grace to me as I share about the beauty and the goodness of your word. And I pray that the things that come out of my mouth, spirit willing, start to change and mold the hearts of the listeners today. That they will be intrigued by the way that Jesus, you are so kind and merciful. In your name we pray. So, um, I'm not a seminarian. I'm not a trained theologian. So, the best I can do is to try to, you know, hit those key points that I found in this passage. And conveniently, there are three G's, right? (laughs) Um, I coined those three as the three barriers. There's the gate, the great chasm, and guilt. Um, And even more conveniently, these barriers, they happen to divide the section into thirds. And we're going to kind of dig a little deeper into each of those sections and see what each of those barriers mean and how they kind of play a role in our lives. So read with me once again just the first section, 19 through 24, right? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, gate, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So biblical authors often use patterns and specific styles to bring you more into the narrative and try to hit these highlight key points, right? So verses 19 and 20, what you're seeing here is a simple comparison. It's a very put side by side and it's very obvious because he's trying to highlight the earthly living condition of the rich man versus the poor man, right? One, in what they wore, and two, in where they lived. Verse 19, the rich man is described as dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple, the symbol of nobility, um, and it was specifically that because back then the dye of purple came from snails. So it was in very low quantity and difficult to mass produce. And fine linen is actually um, very highly prioritized in that time because it was a symbol of purity and cleanliness. In fact, fine linen, that exact phrase that's used here, is used to describe a wife of noble character in the very popular Proverbs 31. Right? And in a similarly impressive fashion, the rich man is described as someone who lived in luxury every day. The ESV actually translates that as feasted sumptuously every day. All to say, what the first verse points is that this man lived way above the standards of those eras. He engorged himself with everything that the world had to offer and everything that his money could buy. Now, while he was doing that, at his gate, recognize that possessive, his gate, at his own gate, laid a poor man named Lazarus. And contrasted, right? The rich man was covered, draped in luxury and fine linen. Lazarus was covered with sores. And what you're noticing here is a commonly used uh, biblical structure called a chiastic structure. Just as a, just for my benefit, how many of you guys have heard of chiastic structure? Okay, a few of you, great. And essentially what it is, is um, it's like in a poem or a song. You use specific patterns that are very recognizable to the audience 
because you're trying to just help them to memorize as well as kind of retain that information. And chiastic specifically comes in a pattern called ABDA, right? Say that with me once, ABDA. Essentially, the two A's, the outer edges, have something in common, and then B's, they have something in common. So it's kind of like a sandwich, and they highlight the little meat that's in the middle. So if you go to the next slide, we're going to break down verse 19 and 20. And those, that's the entire verse. Every word is written up there. And you can see that in A, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, right? In a similar fashion, if you go to the last A, Lazarus himself is dressed with swords. And there's a comparison there in what they wore. And B, the rich man lived in luxury every day. And then Lazarus, comparatively, lived and laid as gate. And what you're seeing there is this emphasis of what's in the middle, right? The top two phrases are about the rich man, and the bottom two phrases are about Lazarus. So not only are they physically divided in this world, right? There's a gate that's physically separating them. Metaphorically and literally, they are completely divided in everything that they do. And this clear divide is actually separating them two, and it's adding emphasis to the text. If you skip verse 21 and then go straight to verse 22 in the next slide, it's actually the same thing. Verse by, or, sorry, word by word. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him, the beggar, to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and the rich man was also buried. It's a little bit different here because it's following an ABAB structure, but it still stands that the top half is about the beggar and the bottom half is about the rich man. There's always a very clear separation when these two subjects are talking with each other and being compared to each other because the author is continuously reiterating the fact that these two could not be more different. But there's actually a key thing here, and it's about A. It's about how they died, right? Everything else is different, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how great that divide, that physical divide was in the world because in the end, they still meet the same fate. They both die, right? I find this really interesting because, um, I, I promise, one more. If you go to the next slide, you put all of them together. It's a chiasm within a chiasm within a parallel. It's, it's, it's really just so cool how it works. Take, take, the, take the subjects, right? A's and A's, it's about the rich man. B and B, it's about the beggar. And what's highlighted is this, is this phrase here, even the dog came and licked the sores. Because what the writer, or what Jesus, as he's speaking, he's reiterating, is the fact that this rich man had zero compassion for Lazarus, right? Even dogs, animals came to, to came and console Lazarus' ailment, but this man, he walked in and out of his own gate, and very much willingly distanced himself, said no, and ignored him. Um, I'm going to go a little off script here. I can just imagine Drew and Leon. Just <laughs> um, I find this kind of like neat little structure pretty cool, but... Uh, can imagine someone listening to this being like, you know, what's the big deal, right? It's, it, it's, it's cute, right? You know, it's, it's, it's quirky. Yeah, I, I see it. But, you know, any high school literature student can come up with something like this, right? I've seen um, up-and-coming rap artists with better rhyme lyrics than this, right? 
But think about it not in the context of what is the passage saying, but who is saying it and why is he saying it. Um, let me think through my thoughts. Um, so Ernest Hemingway, right, American novelist, he, he lived in a time where the American literature landscape was covered with this lengthy floral language that just, you know, these very run-on sentences and they're very poetic. And it was because that was what was popular in Great Britain at the time, right? Essentially, at, during his time, what it meant to be an American author was to be a derivative British author. And he didn't like that. So in his writing, when you read it, it's just, you know, he's quick-firing. They're sh- short phrases. They're very direct. It's, it's like he's saying, like, I am unapologetically me, right? I am different. I'm countercultural. And his writing says more about who he is than what the writing itself is actually saying. Um, similarly, like Maya Angelou, right? When you read her writing, she's so gifted, but she is so not pretentious. She uses metaphors that you find in your everyday lives that anyone can relate to because she wants to invite you in. She recognizes what makes a great storyteller is someone who can bridge that gap between the reader and the teller. And it's like when you read her writing, even though you haven't walked in her shoes, she's, like, she's saying, like, come here, sit by me, and let me tell you about my life, right? And both of these authors realize that their writing is so much more than the stories that they tell. So look at this. Right? Look at this like structure or whatever, like rights, like literature scheme, whatever it is, right? Think about the fact that it's Jesus and who he's telling it to. He's telling it to Pharisees. He's telling it to these people who just scoffed at him and being the all knowing God, right? He knows that these are the people that are eventually going to find him guilty and send him to the cross. And he tells them this for their own benefit. Right? This is, this is not what you write in a hate mail, right? This is not the effort I put in when I write to Comcast, right? <laughs> um, it's, it's the effort and depth that you put into things such as a love letter. And that's exactly what this is. It's, it's, so, it's so beautiful because Jesus just gives it a response to these people who are hating on him. And he writes this magnificent style of writing because more telling about who our God is. He's saying that he cares. He's saying, even if you hate me, even if you want harm from me, I still love you, I still care about you, and I know you personally, and I want to speak into that life, right? Jesus at that moment is saying to the Pharisees, I see the road that you are going down, but I don't want that. I want you to be into, like, come into my house. I want to be with you. And you can see that in just the effort that's put in here, and it's really beautiful. Um, okay, we'll, we'll put a pause on it. <laughs> that's the end of the rant. So I'm going to dial it back a bit, right? Um, so to quickly summarize the first section, Jesus is making a point about Lazarus' life and the rich man's life. They're polar opposites. There's a physical divide. But still, nonetheless, doesn't matter how strong this divide is, it will never keep them from coming to the same end. So continue reading with me the next section. So 
The time died when the beggar, or the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. See, it's actually pretty similar, right, how it's written with the first section. Uh, One man receives great fortune, the other one receives immeasurable torment. And, but the thing is, unlike on earth, there are stories of flips, right? Death brought upon a great reversal within the narrative. And notice just (laughs) poetic justice that's coming in these verses, right? Like Lazarus on earth, he was inflamed with sores all over his body. And after death, he's carried off despite his sores. He is embraced by Abraham, right? He's still accepted. While on earth, Lazarus longed to be fed the leftovers from someone else's meals. In verse 25, it says he is now comforted here. In other words, all his needs have been met. He is found to be complete. In the exact opposite manner, the rich man on earth, he is covered in what luxury, right? But after death, he's covered in flames, in anguish. And while on earth, the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. Um, he is now the beggar. He's the one who has to beg Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger just to be able to cool his tongue. See, it's just like on earth. There's a barrier that seemingly cannot be crossed, and it's on earth as well as in heaven. But the critical question here is what determines which side of the chasm someone lands on after death, right? And we might think with a sample size of two that all rich people go to heaven or hell and all poor people go to heaven. Um, But that's not the complete picture. See, the context is really important here. Because a key detail that would have been a lot more apparent to the Jewish audience is the inclusion of this other character, Father Abraham. And this relationship that Father Abraham has with each of those people is really critical to what the message is trying to say. Abraham, if you remember, is identified in the Old Testament as a father of believers. He's a common patriarch of Israel, one whose lineage and family line that God promised to fulfill all his promises through in Genesis. And then verse 22 and 23 actually state that Lazarus is at his side. That's a really interesting phrasing, at his side, because King James actually translates that as Lazarus was in his bosoms. It's a similar type of language um, a father would use to embrace his son, right, into his arms, into his bosoms. And although not too much is mentioned about Lazarus' faith on earth, um, it can be inferred that he led a faith life that is recognizable because, one, he's with Abraham, and, two, he's given a name in the story, whereas the rich man is not, right? Okay, so what about the rich man, right? Actually, in verse 24, he addresses Abraham as Father Abraham, right? 
And then in verse 25, he's addressed by Abraham as son. Essentially, what those two are saying is it's supporting the fact that the rich man was Jewish. He was Jewish by culture as well as Jewish by blood. Right? But, you know, as we previously discussed, he lived a life where he filled himself with the things of this world while knowingly neglecting the needs of those around him. His sins are even similarly mirrored by the sins of Sodom in Ezekiel 16 when it states, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Right? It's becoming a bit more clear that it's not about rich or poor, but it's also definitely not about what you claim your faith to be. It doesn't matter that the rich man may have been Jewish by blood because he lived a life on earth that is a complete contradiction to the Torah by living solely to fill his purse and stomach and neglecting the needs of those around him. He purposefully put barriers to distance himself from the poor. And this is a very key point because the Jewish audience that's listening to him right now, they were following along with the story, right? And they were thinking to themselves, I'm, I'm like the poor man, right? I am the one who is oppressed by the rich. But it's the first time that they actually realize and put themselves in the shoes of the rich man. I'm like him because I live by the falsehood that being Jewish by blood and culture alone is not enough. If you bring that into our world, right, it's the churchgoer. It's the, it's the grown-up in church. It's the know your Bible, but behind the scenes living another life, right? It's this idea that, yes, our lives don't completely mirror that of the rich man, but we are so much more like the rich man than we actually think. Because we all live lives against the word, because we show contempt to the needs around us, and we're selfish with the earthly riches that we feel that we have earned. We distance ourselves and turn a blind eye to others knowingly, and according to this passage, actually, our sinfulness places us on a clear line trajectory to the side of the chasm filled with torment and anguish. Right? And having experienced this torment and anguish, the rich man concludes the parable by pleading to Abraham to warn his family. Read with me uh, the final few verses. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And I want to just let that sit for a little bit. Because the rich man saw in that moment the absolute hopelessness of his eternity. He does try to attempt and correct his wrong one last time by saving the ones he loved, but he's rejected again. Right? He's rejected three times in this parable by Abraham. His faith is absolute, done and over. Okay, so where does that leave us, right? 
we kind of talked about this logic train where we ourselves find or we find ourselves within the shoes of the rich man. And according to the passage, it's pretty clear. We deserve the same fate as this man. Our sins bring about guilt, which enters the picture as a third barrier, which keeps us away from eternity with God. However, right, a parable that concludes as a rejection for the rich man actually concludes with an invitation for us today. Verse 31 finishes the parable by saying, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The irony is very clear. It almost slaps you in the face, right? Because it's Jesus who's telling this story, right? And, you know, the audience listening to this, they're actually listening to someone who will soon be rising from the dead. But then actually for us as listeners and readers of the Gospel of Luke today, we're being warned by someone who has risen from the dead. Right? And that's why we find ourselves in a place of absolute privilege. Right? Absolute privilege. See, because Father Abraham wouldn't send Lazarus to the rich man's brothers, but God our Father sent Jesus to warn us. Right? Jesus came back from the dead to warn us, to save us. He who knew no sin became poor on our behalf so that we, by placing our faith in him, may break through the barriers that our sins have placed so that we may be received into heaven. And it's a very clear message today. Without Jesus, we are hopeless. But our faith in him and his resurrection on the cross helps to break through any barriers that are keeping us away from eternity with Christ. So, let's respond to the goodness of God today. Right? And accept this invitation and heed this warning. Place our faith in Jesus Christ. I have two uh, specific applications. The first one is to break your gate, or your physical barriers in your life, right? We start this by examining your lives and becoming a little bit more cognizant of the way that we serve others with our fortune, such as time and money, right? We can begin this process by asking yourselves questions such as, how am I like the rich man? That I call myself Christian, but I distance myself from the needs around me, right? And my prayer for all of us in this application is that we follow in the example of Jesus and begin to bridge that gap between us and the needs of around us, right? And as the parable identifies, the greatest barrier to us to overcome is actually not physical, but it's spiritual. And that's why it's leading us to the second application, to warn others of the great chasm. So if you are not a follower of Jesus today, we invite you to see that he is the key to life everlasting. No fortune nor success of this world is enough to connect the two sides of the chasm, but Jesus can. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, urgently seek the lost and tell them of this gospel message, right? Tell them there is a hope that will never fail and a Father whose promises are sure. And then before Rachel comes up, um, I'm 
going to just end with a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to sing another song together, right? Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful because you love us so much. You care for us even though at times we are so against the agenda that you have. But you are so merciful. You are so graceful. You embrace us into your bosom. And you tell us that we matter. You write poetry for us. You, you teach us the right way to go. And ultimately what it leads to is your house. And we are so grateful for that. In your name we pray. Amen.